Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please take your Bible and open it to Psalm 10. The 10th Psalm, Psalm 10. We continue our series through the Psalms, and by God's providence, providence and design, we're on Psalm 10 in a, a week like the week we've just had in our country. Hear the word of God from Psalm 10. Lord Yahweh, why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked relentlessly pursue their victims. Let them be caught in the schemes they have devised. For the wicked one boasts about his own cravings. The one who is greedy curses and despises the Lord. In all his scheming, the wicked person arrogantly thinks, there's no accountability since there's no God. He's always secure. Your lofty judgments have no effect on him. He scoffs at all his adversaries. He says to himself, I will never be moved from generation to generation without calamity. Cursing, deceit, and violence fill his mouth. Trouble and malice are under his tongue. He waits in ambush near settlements. He kills the innocent in secret places. His eyes are on the lookout for the helpless. He lurks in secret like a lion in a thicket. He lurks in order to seize a victim. He seizes a victim and drags him in his net. So he is oppressed and beaten down. Helpless people, helpless people fall because of the wicked one's strength. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He hides his face and he'll never see. Rise up, Lord, God, lift up your hand. Don't forget the oppressed. Why has the wicked person despised God? He says to himself, you will not demand an account, but you yourself have seen trouble and grief, observing it in order to take matters into your hands. The helpless one entrusts himself to you. You are a helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked, evil person until you look for his wickedness, but it can't be found. Yahweh is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. Yahweh, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their hearts. You will listen carefully, doing justice for the fatherless and the oppressed so that mere humans from the earth may terrify them no more. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Father, we pray now that you would help us to understand and apply your word, that we would see your goodness, your love, your justice, your righteousness, your power, your wisdom, and that we would trust you. Teach us to pray and lament well. Teach us to lament injustice and teach us how to process anger and pain and confusion in ways that not only honor your name, but heal our souls and channel grace to our neighbors. None of this is possible apart from your Holy Spirit. Give wisdom to each one here as we are applying it here to our own lives and even to our own cultural and historical moment where opportunities for error abound. 
Give wisdom to each of us here and wisdom to me. Lord, help me to be faithful. Help us to faithfully hear and discern. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's been a hard week, and every Christian who is aware of the situation longs for peace, salvation, and for God to act justly in these dark and destructive days. Our cities are burning. Properties are being destroyed. Our neighbors and members are grieving ethnocentric oppression and the killing of an African-American man at the hands of the police. I use the word ethnocentric oppression rather than systemic racism for terminological reasons, but um, there's a very, it's almost similar. But people are grieving that. People are debating at the same time. Political tribes are jockeying for position. Culture wars are raging. Pastors and Christians are, disagree pastors are disagreeing with other pastors. Pastors are disagreeing with other Christians. Christians are disagreeing with, them, with each other. And where is the Lord Jesus in all of this? Where is biblical truth? Where's the Holy Spirit who dwells within his people in times like this? Where's God? Not only in his people, but in this world, in situations like this. You might feel despair at the brokenness and the confusion of the situation. Maybe you feel despair. Maybe you're discouraged. Maybe you feel anger. Maybe you're grieving. Or maybe you're scared. And maybe there's a combination of that. Maybe some of you are irritated. Satan is having his way, causing confusion in this world and stirring up sin, not only in this world, but in his churches, among Christians. Revelation is about not just the beast that oppresses, but the beast that deceives and tricks people with a fake Christianity with a pretend biblicism that is actually unbiblical. The second beast looks like a lamb, but his voice is the voice of a dragon. Confusion and division for Christians will not win in the end, but they can win for a short season. It can divide Bethany Baptist Church. It can divide other churches in our day today, in this day. Christ will build his church and the gates of hell will not stand against the church, generally speaking. But local churches are not promised to live forever. For Bethany Baptist Church, Satan must not win this round of the battle in the great cosmic war we are in. So what we need is hope. We need rock-solid hope that will sustain us and enable us to be the salt of the world, the salt of the earth and the light of the world that God calls us to be for Christ, in our community, and in our society. Now, in Psalm 10, we're looking at Psalm 10, God calls us to lament injustice. The psalmist here, who is not identified as David specifically, the psalmist is lamenting injustice. What is lamenting? Lamenting is more than crying. You just need to be human to cry, to feel pain and cry over pain. Lamenting is a Christian thing to do. It's a believer's thing to do because lamenting means that we lament not just crying in general over pain, but we're crying to someone. We're crying to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're crying out to the triune God because we believe that God is good in the midst of our confusion, pain, 
in the midst of our confusion and pain, we know that God is good, even when we don't fully understand. Now, I'm going to preach this psalm as it is. The words and goal of this text must control the words and goal of my sermon. So I will preach this in a way that should be edifying to all Christians on both sides of the debate. But I'm not a politician. I'm a preacher. Because I'm a preacher, I'm going to preach and apply God's word to the situation as the way I see that it should be applied to the situation. So I'm going to say things that are helpful for both sides. But I'm not trying to play both sides at the end of the day. I'm not trying to be neutral. I'm not trying to just take one side or the other. I want to be biblical. I'm responsible to teach you what the Bible says and how it applies to this historical moment. So when I do specific applications later, you might not agree with all of my applications. Or you might say, I don't know if I disagree either. I'm just still processing it. Either way, that's okay here at Bethany Baptist Church. We are united around our confession of faith, and we're united around our church covenant. That's what we agree on. And we're united in the fact that we will love each other based on our understanding of the gospel, our confession of faith, and our church covenant. What I'm saying is that there's room to disagree here at BBC, but we will disciple each other because we want to take every thought and feeling captive to Jesus Christ. We're not content to just have a confession of faith and church covenant. We want to keep growing as Christians, right? And so we need to do that. So here's the main goal of this psalm. So I think a lot of what I'm going to say is going to generally be agreeable with most of you until I start to do some specific work a little bit towards the end. Here's the main goal of the, of the psalm, okay? Practice Christian lament in the face of injustice and oppression so that, you, so that God produces unshakable hope in you. Practice Christian lament in the face of injustice and oppression, so that God produces unshakable hope in your soul. I know I said that fast, so let me say it again. Practice Christian lament in the face or in the midst of injustice and oppression. Why? So that God produces hope in your soul, in you. All right, we want to practice Christian lament in the face of injustice and oppression. So there are four aspects to practicing Christian lament. There are certain Psalms in the Psalter, the five books of, of the Psalter. There are 150 Psalms. There are several Psalms that are lament Psalms, and they generally follow the same structure. And this Psalm is a textbook lament Psalm. So I'm just going to, I'm going to preach the structure of what a lament is, and that's going to be the outline for this sermon. Okay. And I'm going to, and this is also going to teach you how to lament so you can write your own lament as well. Even if you disagree with other people in this church, we could write two laments that disagree with each other and both lament to God. Okay. So there are four aspects to lamenting that we see here in Psalm 10 and other lament Psalms. The acronym is TCAT, T-C-A-T. Okay. TCAT. I had SCART earlier, <laughs> which is actually a plug that was used for televisions and computers in the seventies and eighties. And I was like, maybe SCART would work, but that's just nobody is going to remember SCART. So TCAT, you might not remember TCAT either, but that's the outline, TCAT, okay? So turn to the, so when you're in the midst of oppression and injustice, or you see it around you and you're confused and you're feeling the pain, do TCAT. Turn to the Lord. Number two, complain to the Lord. That doesn't sound Christian, but it's biblical and Christian. Complain to the Lord. A is ask the Lord. I would say ask reasonably. That's where SCART came in was the R for reasonably. Ask the Lord 
And the last T is trust in the Lord. Okay? When you're in the midst of oppression and injustice or you're seeing it around you and you're confused or hurt and you don't know where God is, turn to the Lord, complain to the Lord, ask the Lord, and trust in the Lord. Let's look at these one at a time, beginning with uh, turn to the Lord, verse 1. It's really the first word of verse 1. What's the first word there? Say it through your face masks. Lord, right? Lord. And it's capital L-O-R-D. So it's not the word Adonai, Lord, Master, Sovereign. It's Yahweh, the covenant name of God. When you see trouble and justice, injustice in this world, where do you turn? If you're not a Christian, I wonder, where do you turn? Even Christians, where do you turn when you start to feel the pressure that gets overwhelming in your life? It doesn't have to be, by the way, Psalm 10 doesn't just apply to big injustices. That just happens to be May 31st, 2020. It can apply to little injustices, and I'll apply it in little ways as well. But when you have these big troubles and trials in your life, a, a trouble at work where a coworker or a boss is unjustly treating you, or a church member, or a pastor, or, or you know, another Christian is unjustly treating you or misrepresenting you, when that happens to you, what do you do? Where do you turn? To whom do you turn? Don't go to other would-be sources of refuge. Don't turn ultimately to your family. Some of you turn ultimately to your family or to your church. I'm for the church, obviously. Some turn to social media or your tribe, the people who agree with you. It could be a theological tribe, a political tribe, a social tribe, an ethno, an ethnic a people group tribe. We could turn to knowledge. I just need to read more, get more knowledge and understanding. We could turn to our health, turn to possessions, things you own, turn to hobbies and distractions, to career and just go harder at work. You can turn to using substances to distract you or to numb you. Alcoholism, we talked about drunkenness in our prayer of confession. Don't go to these sources ultimately for your refuge because you will, be, you will be disappointed at the end of the day. These are not God. Who should you turn to? To God. And his name here is Yahweh in verse 1, right? Who is Yahweh? Yahweh is the covenant God. Exodus 3, 14 and 15. When Moses said, what should I tell Israel your name is? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what, the, what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also told Moses, say this to the Israelites, Yahweh the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered in every generation. So God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who keeps his covenant. So Deuteronomy 7, 9, my memory verse from last week. I don't know if I still have it memorized. Know that Yahweh, Deuteronomy 7, 9, know that Yahweh, your God, is God. The faithful God who keeps his gracious covenant loyalty for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commands. His name is Yahweh. I am who I am, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who will keep his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to bless the cursed world through the great nation and the offspring of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ. So who is Yahweh? Yahweh is the triune God. Yahweh refers to the Father at times. Yahweh refers to the Son at times in the Old Testament. So the triune God revealed in Jesus Christ is who we're to turn to. That's who you turn to when you are in pain. God kept his promise to bless the nations through Abraham, through Jesus Christ. God the Son became a man 
lived the life we should have lived, died on the cross for your sins, Christian, and for everyone who would repent from their sins and believe. He died on the cross for every sinner who would ever believe, for every one of their sins. He rose from the dead in the power of the Holy Spirit. He ascended on high. He sent his Holy Spirit down to dwell within his people and to regenerate his people and to empower his people to spread the gospel. And one day he's coming again with final judgment and justice and salvation to usher his people into a new earth forever and ever and ever to this renewed earth. That's the gospel. That God saves the world through his son, Jesus Christ. God saves sinners through Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian, there is no more important message you will hear from me or from anyone in the world than this. God wants to save you and God will save you through Jesus Christ. He sent his son to die for you. He sent his son to rise for you. He calls you now to repent from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. Trust in him and not your own righteousness and you will be saved. Call on the Lord Jesus to save you and he will save you. If you have more questions about that, ask a Christian friend who might have invited you to this site, on site, or online on the Zoom meeting. Ask a Christian friend. Email us. Go to our church, BethanyBaptist.Church. Fill out a guest card, and let me um, have a further conversation with you if you have questions. But God is calling you. Make no mistake. Question or not, God is calling you to repent from your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. So the point here is turn to God, right? Don't turn to your family or friends or to other situations. Turn to God ultimately. Now you still get to turn to your family or your church because they're going to point you to God. But if you're just looking for final comfort in your church or in your friends or in your family, you're not going to find it. And that's not Christian lament. In my devotions this week, Second, Second Kings chapter 1, I read this week, ah, King Ahaziah, the king of Israel, he was concerned about his injury. He fell out of a window, Ahab's son, and he got injured and he was bedridden and he he said, you know what? I need to find out if I'm going to be healed. So he got messengers, the king's messengers, king of Israel. He sent messengers. He said, you guys go. I want you guys go to, to go to Philistia, to the Philistines. Go to, go to the god of Ekron, Ekron. Um, Beelzebub. In the New Testament, um, Beelzebul. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> the king of Israel saying, go to Beelzebub and go find out if I'm going to be healed. So where does he turn? He turns to Beelzebub. So he sends his messengers. They're on their way. And a prophet stops them. Elijah. The one with camel hair clothes. Looking all wild and crazy. He says, where are you guys, where are you guys going? Oh, we're going to, to Ekron to talk to, Beelzebub, to, to, to find out from Beelzebub if our, if our king is going to be healed. Elijah says, you turn around right now and go tell him that because he wanted to go to Beelzebub, he's not going to recover. He's going to die in his bed. He's never getting out of his bed again. So they go back, and the king's like, what? Why are you back so fast? And he says, well, uh, some guy told us to turn around and tell you that you're going to die. Was he wearing camel hair clothes and looking all crazy? Yeah. He's like, Elijah the Tishbite. <laughs> and so um, he, he sends people. Man, I want to just tell the whole story. I'm not going to tell the whole story. I'm so excited. I love the story, but I, can hear, I hear the Sunday reviewers right now. Don't get caught up in the story. Okay. Read Second Kings 1. It's a fun story. But here's the point. Elijah shows up there. And he tells the king directly, because you went to Beelzebub, he's like, isn't there a God in Israel? Isn't Yahweh the God of Israel? You're going to go to Beelzebub, the God of Ekron, the Philistines, to find out if you're going to be healed? So Elijah tells him to his face himself, you're going to die in your bed, judgment from Yahweh, because you didn't turn to the Lord. 
brothers, sisters, friends, don't turn to your family. Don't turn to your friends. Don't turn to your church ultimately. Is there not a God of Bethany Baptist Church that you can turn to? Is there not a God who died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead who dwells within you that you can turn to when you're in pain? We roll our eyes at the God of Ekron and going to the God of Ekron, yet we turn to social media and family and friends and work and hobbies and substances, substances for ultimate relief. Are we any wiser or just as foolish as those who are going to Beelzebub, a God who doesn't exist? Turn to the one living and true God. Church family, let's keep influencing each other towards Jesus and disciple each other. Let's be a praying church that continually goes to God with our pains. Come tonight to our drive-in gathering and let's pray together to the Lord. Let's turn to the one living and true God as a church. For the society, the police can't save you. The National Guard can't save you. Your government leaders can't save you. Protesters can't save you. No one but God can save you. That's not to say you shouldn't do anything, but social media can't save you. Nothing can finally and fully deliver you from your pain and from your oppression and from the injustice, but God and God alone. Turn to the living and true God, Jesus Christ, who died for sinners and rose from the dead. Main goal again, practice Christian lament in the face of injustice and oppression so that God produces unshakable hope in you. So turn to God. That's the T of T cat. What's the C? Complain to God. Complain to the Lord. Complain to Yahweh. That's also verse one. We're still in verse one. Complain to the Lord. Yahweh. Now he has an honest complaint to the Lord. This is where believers must go. If you're going to, if you're going to go to God, you know, he's an all knowing, all powerful and good God, but you don't know why he's good because there's all this craziness. And so you're going to ask questions like this. Why do you stand so far away, Lord? Lord Jesus, what, where are you? Why are you so far away from Minneapolis, from downtown LA? Why are you so far away from a man who has a knee on the back of his neck for eight minutes? Where are you, Lord? Why are you so distant? Why do you hide in times of trouble? When he says, why are you distant? God, he's saying, God, you seem so far away. And then the second question turns it up one notch. It's not like, God, are you far? Like maybe you're just, you're busy doing something else. The second part of verse one is even more accusatory towards, towards the Lord in complaining, right? Why are you hiding? The first one is passive. You're just distant somewhere. The second one is like, you know, there's something going on here. And God, why are you hiding? Why are you avoiding the situation? I mean, think about all the crimes and sins committed with an abuse of power and preying on the weak. Or if, even if they're not perpetually weak, those weak in a moment. Because everyone has weak moments, right? Even if you're a real powerful mobster, you can find a moment where he's not guarded with his, with his security. There's, mo there's moments of weakness, right? Everyone has a moment of weakness, except for God. He's the only one who never has a moment of weakness. But think about all the crimes committed on those and preying on people who are weak or who are in moments of weakness. God could stop the oppression, couldn't he? Do you guys believe that? That God could stop the oppression? God could stop the injustice. He can't stop ethnocentric oppression towards African-Americans. He can't stop the abuse of government authority and the corruption of systems. God can't stop the unrighteous destruction and stealing of property amidst non-peaceful protests, destroying many businesses owned by the community 
and by people of color? Let's just get out of the situation of this week. Can God stop rapists from raping? He can, right? Where is he? Why is he hiding? God can't stop a persecu the persecution of, for being a Christian? God can stop murders? He could stop sexual abuse? He could stop domestic abuse? He could stop substance abuse? He could stop economic preying on one another? He could stop abortions? He could stop assisted suicides? And he does stop some. But he lets a lot of it go, doesn't he? Why are you so distant? Why are you hiding? Lord? Again, to get out of our current situation, not that it doesn't apply here. I'm going to apply it here. I prayed for Farida, a Christian woman who lost her business and home in Uganda to fire. I'll read the prayer request. When the restaurant she owned and operated was burned six months after she became a believer, Farida assumed it had been an accident. But earlier this year, the two rooms she rented in a home were also burned and neighbors mentioned smelling gasoline. Farida lost everything she owned and now suspects her relatives were responsible for the fires. Her relatives! After being abandoned by her husband, her relatives had been helping her raise her six children. But when she became a Christian, they cursed her and told her she would never have peace as long as she was a Christian. Her landlord is also demanding reimbursement for the loss for the burned rooms. From a single mom of six children whose family has abandoned her. And why have they abandoned her? Because she's what? A Christian. Could God have stopped the fires? Could God have stopped the family from abandoning her? Why are you so distant, Lord? Why are you hiding? The psalmist is complaining here. And, and God gives us Psalm 10 verse 1 to validate Christian complaining. It's okay to not be okay. It's just not okay to stay there forever. It's okay to not be okay. There's times to weep and we're not even going to say, you can only weep for one week. Right? I mean, it's okay to not be okay. It's just not okay to stay there because God brings ultimate redemption and we want to bring healing. But we want to be patient with people. It's okay to not be okay. It's just not okay to stay there. So application here, Christian, complain directly to God. The Bible disciples us to pray in this way. Be honest. There, there's no use in pretending anyways, right? I mean, God is all-knowing. If you have a complaining heart towards God and you're doubting God, Oh, I shouldn't say that to God. That's disrespectful. God already knows. The Psalms, these Psalms, the lament Psalms, give us a license to just be honest with God and just say it anyways. Doesn't mean you're not sinning necessarily, but you're sinning in your heart anyways. It's not like an extra sin to say it out loud to God. Saying it out loud to God is actually a way of processing it to work through the issue. Not saying it is to bottle it up and not work through the issue with God. So be honest to God. Complain directly to God. Church family, give one another space to lament. And lament with one another to God, like the psalmist and other biblical authors do. Lamentations is a book about lamenting. That's Lamentations, a whole book about lamenting. Jeremiah wrote that one. If you're not a Christian, who do you complain to? 
There are things to complain about in this world, aren't there? There is brokenness and pain in this world. Who do you complain to? And does your complaining, if you're not going to God and you're not a Christian, does your complaining lead to hope because the person you're complaining to actually has the power to permanently make the bad situation a good situation for you? Or does your complaining lead to further hopelessness and despair and disappointment and cynicism? Only God can truly help. So the good news for us is that God wants us to honestly come to him with our anger and our confusion because he loves and cares for you. Praise God that God says, get yourself right emotionally first, then come talk to me. That's how sometimes we, we talk to each other, right? We don't give each other space to lament. God is saying, you don't have to fix yourself when you come to me. Just come to me. I love you. I care for you. I love you, Bethany Baptist Church. I love you and I want you to come to me. Just talk to me. Process it with me. Complain to me. That's good news that we have a God who loves and cares for us as a wise and loving father. So practice Christian lament in the face of injustice and oppression so that God produces unshakable hope in you. We're doing TCAT. How do you practice Christian lament? TCAT. T is for what? Turn. C is for? Complain. Complain to the Lord. And number three is? Ask the Lord. Verses chapter uh, chapter or Psalm 10 verses 2 through 15. This is a huge passage, but we're not going to go through it very long. We're just going to read through it and try to get the sense of it, okay? Now, there are two categories of prayer requests here that the psalmist asks for when he's complaining to the Lord and when he's lamenting to the Lord. His first prayer request is kind of mild, and then the second prayer request ramps up to even a stronger type of prayer request, okay? Um, so the first prayer request is more like, God, let, let this evil come back on their heads. Let, let their dumb decisions and their unjust and their unrighteous decisions, let it come back on their heads. Let them fall into their own trap. So um, the one way I could say this, if I, if I had to put this, ask the Lord in two types of prayer requests here. The first prayer request is ask the Lord to let them get caught up in their own schemes. Okay, that would be the first prayer request here if I, if I were giving you the two asks. Ask the Lord to let them get caught up in their own wicked schemes. Verses two through 11. Now look at their request. Look at the request of the psalmist in verse two. In arrogance, the wicked relentlessly pursue their victims. That's a reason why. So what's the prayer request in verse two, the second part? Let them be caught in the schemes they have devised. So ask the Lord to let them get caught up in their own schemes. God, let them fall in their own traps. Why? Why should God do that? Why should God do it? Because in verse two, in their arrogance, they relentlessly pursue their victims. But there's more reason. I'm just going to go through these verses and show you one, two, three, four, five, six reasons. You don't have to write them all down. It's too much for you. I'm not going to count them off. Okay, verse three, they boast in cravings. Look at verse three. For the wicked one boasts about his own cravings. The one who is greedy curses and despises the Lord. Did you have people boasting about sexual immorality and getting as many women as they want, right? They sing about that. They talk about it and celebrate in songs. They boast about what they crave. They boast about their sexually immoral lusts. They boast about the money and the greed that they, that they have. They boast about their cravings as if it's not a big deal. God, let them fall in their own trap. Another reason here, verse four, they arrogantly dismiss God. In all his scheming, the wicked person arrogantly thinks, there's no accountability since there's no God. I don't believe God exists anyways. I'm not gonna be held accountable. So they dismiss God's existence. Another reason why God should let them get caught up in their own wicked schemes, verse five and six, 
His ways are always secure. Your lofty judgments have no effect on him, God. He scoffs at all his adversaries. He says to himself, I'll never be moved from generation to generation without calamity. So he's overconfident with a false security. He thinks he's unstoppable. He thinks he's unbreakable. He thinks he's unbeatable. And he's not. But he thinks that. And that's arrogance against the Lord, right? And so the psalmist is saying, Lord, I love you. I want you to be glorified. This guy is smashing your glory. Let him get caught up in his own schemes. Verse 7. We see that their mouths are sinfully filthy. Cursing, deceit, and violence fill his mouth. Trouble and malice are under his tongue. Have you heard and seen filthy mouths? Sometimes we've seen it on ourselves, right? Cursing, filth, evil, blasphemy, decrying of others, slandering others, loosely letting our tongue loose. James 3 says our tongue is a fire that burns down forests, burns down churches, burns down families, burns down societies. God let them fall in their own trap. Verses 8 through 10, we see that this person schemes and prays on the vulnerable. Look at verse 8. He waits in ambush, so he's waiting in ambush near settlements. He kills the innocent in secret places. He can't even just fight straight up. It's not a fair fight, right? He's waiting for a vulnerable moment. He's hiding. He's plotting. He's planning. Verse 8, his eyes are on the lookout for the helpless. He lurks in secret like a lion in a thicket. He lurks in order to seize a victim. He seizes the victim and drags him in his net so that the guy dragged in his net is oppressed and beaten down. Helpless people fall because of the wicked one's strength. That's what happens, right? Child molestation. An adult who's powerful and strong with a child who's weak and vulnerable won't do it in front of other adults, right? They got a plot. And plan and get, get, a, get a, a quiet space, an isolated space, where someone who has equal power can't challenge them so that they can prey on their prey. That's what wicked, that's what the evil does. And, and so the psalmist is saying, God, judge them. Let them fall in their own schemes. I mean, the killing that just happened recently on Monday to George Floyd, it's not like they're like, hey, let's fight and kill each other, like a fair fight, Right? You get a position of power, a moment of power, a moment of weakness, and then you prey on the person in that weakness with other police officers on them and then sitting on his neck where no one else can help. I mean, did you feel helpless watching that video? Imagine, I, I was telling Francis, just processing, what if I was there? What, what, what would I have done? What could I have done? Should I just run and just say, you know what, hon, I love you. See you later. You know, I'm, I'm going to die now. I'm just going to go and just go there and just push them off as best I can. Like, what would you do in a situation like that? You feel helpless, right? In some ways. Not that you are helpless, not that we couldn't do things, but my point is like, there's a feeling of helplessness because the position of the situation and the crime is in such, in such a way that the, the power of that moment benefits the oppressor and it, it's a weak moment for the oppressed. And so the psalmist says, let him fall on his own schemes, preying on the vulnerable. And then verse 11, Psalm 10, 11, he says to himself, God has forgotten he hides his face and will never see. Now you're straight up blaspheming God himself. It's not just like I'm praying on these people. First he said, there is no God. So he's not consistent here. And then he says, yeah, there is a God, but guess what? He's forgotten. He hides his face and will never see. 
He thinks he got he could get away with it. I read a story in preparing here. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis tells a story about a a politician who um, was driving and there was a man drunk walking on the street and he hit the man and then he sped off. And it was like late at night and thought no one was around. And so um, he told his friends and family, oh yeah, like the dent in his car was, he hit you know debris on the street and it turns out later that there was a witness and um, he was held accountable. But the idea that he could just lie to his family and friends and just say, oh yeah, I just, I just hit debris because no one saw. God doesn't see. There's no accountability. And that person got caught. But you and I can easily imagine, and it's not mere imagination. We know that it's real, that there are people who get away with that all the time, right? That never get caught in this life. And so they say, God has forgotten. He hides his face and will never see. So, so the psalmist here, and we should do the same, ask the Lord to let them get caught up in their own wicked schemes. But there's a second prayer request, verses 12 through 15. So not just that they would get caught up in their own, second, their own um, wicked schemes. The second prayer request is in verses 12 through 15. Ask the Lord to act for the oppressed against the oppressor. Ask the Lord to act for the oppressed against the oppressor. Look at verse 12. Here's the prayer request. The, the prayer request is in verses 12 and 15, and the reasons are verses 13 and 14. Just so you guys, if you want to see the breakdown there. But we'll talk about the request and then the reasons. Verse 12 Here's, there's three prayer requests here in verse 12. Rise up, Lord. Rise up, Yahweh God. It's not like God is literally sitting down or laying down. He's telling me literally get up. He's just telling God to act, right? Get up, Lord. Rise up, act. When, I say, when, when he's saying rise up, I think about my childhood when um, I would be able to get away with certain things when my dad was not on top of his discipline game. And, um, you know, if we're, we're messing around at home, like you, you, you kind of do something kind of bad, a little bad, and you kind of look at, and you're, even if your dad sees you, you're like, just like, is he getting up though? If you don't, if he doesn't get up, you just feel like, you know, peace. But then as soon as you see my, like, as soon as I see my dad get up with that face, like, oh man, I'm in trouble now. It's that, that idea of this, you know, the, I can get away with sin, but then the psalmist is saying, God, get up. Like a dad who's about to bring the whipping to his unjust son, you know? Get up, God. Rise up and act. Verse 12 continues. Lift up your hand. Again, God doesn't have a literal hand. This is poetry, but he's asking God to act. Do not forget the oppressed. Not that God would forget the oppressed, but he's saying, remember what happened to this oppressed person, these oppressed people, your oppressed people, and act in light of that specific oppressive sin that was committed. God, don't forget what happened. That's the same prayer request that the saints pray under the altar in Revelation 6. I think it's the fifth seal, you know, the four seals when Christ is opening the seven seals. The fifth seal, I think, in Revelation 6, it's he opens the seal and then there's the martyrs under the altar who died living for Jesus. And they say, how long, O Lord, will you, will, when are you going to avenge our blood? Don't forget the oppressed. Don't forget what happened to us. Don't forget what happened in our suffering from our opponents as we were walking the path of following Jesus. Don't forget about our Christian suffering. Not that God would, but he's asking, they're asking for specific justice. And then verse 15 is the other prayer request. Break the arm of the wicked, evil person, until you look. So it's not, he's not just saying disable them, though that would do it with breaking the arm. Until you look for his wickedness and it can't be found. So he's not just saying break their arm, but end them. 
and their wickedness, that the wickedness is just completely gone and eradicated. Break their arm and end their evil. Now, why should God do this? Why should God act for the oppressed against the oppressor? Look at verses 13 and 14. Look at verses 13 and 14. Here's his reasons why God should act and judge. Why has the wicked, one wicked person despised God? He says to himself, you will not demand an account. So what do we learn from that? They despise God. They despise God and they think God's not giving an account. So he's saying, Lord, rise up and judge that fool. Because he's acting like you're not going to give him an account. They despise you, Lord. Verse 14 gives a, a, a second reason. The first part of verse 14. But you yourself have seen trouble and grief, observing it in order to take matters into your own hands. So the point here is, God, you see the oppression. Why should you act? Because you see it, Lord. Act for the oppressed against the oppressor because you saw it. And you saw it in order that you would take the matter into your own hands. So go do it, Lord. And then the second part of verse 14, the helpless one entrusts himself to you. You are a helper of the fatherless. Why should you trust in, or why should, why should God act? Because God is a trustworthy helper. He helps those who are helpless. They entrust themselves to him and God is trustworthy. He comes through again and again. He is a helper to the fatherless. And the fatherless are the, those who are orphaned without fathers. Fathers are the protectors, right? Fathers are the protectors and providers and leaders of their homes. So if there's someone, if there's some human who's going to protect the family, it's the father. But these are fatherless. They have no protector. They are helpless. So who's their helper? Who's their father to the fatherless? Yahweh, the Lord. So here's a prayer request. Ask them to get caught up in their own wicked schemes and ask for the oppressed to, against the oppressor. Now again, brothers and sisters, keep in mind, I'm not only applying this to big things. This applies to small things. Small personal injustices that happen to you in this church or in your church, if you're not from our church and you're watching. Small but real personal injustices that happen in the workplace. Do injustices, injustices happen in marriage? Does that happen in marriage? Yes, it does. In all kinds of ways. Who said yes? Never mind. Don't raise your hand. You might get in trouble with your spouse. You can do that because your spouse ain't here. Yeah, but no. So, but you know, it does happen in marriage, right? It happens in families. I mean, there are times where me and friends are make, doing our best to, to call it fair with our kids, and we don't know. We don't know, like, really who's right or wrong in a situation. And there are times we've gotten it wrong, I'm sure. And there's injustice there even in the home. We don't mean to be it that way, but it is. In your workplace, have you experienced injustice in the workplace? Oppression, sliding, and a, an attack that's unfair and unrighteous? Have you been misrepresented by anyone ever? Have you been lied about? It's not just the big societal issues, even the small ones. The psalm applies to all of them. You can turn to the Lord. You can complain to the Lord. Lord, where were you when my boss lied about me? That's fair. The psalmist gives you space to do that and to ask God to end your boss. Not end them in like, you know, kill them, but like end the injustice, right? Break their arm, Lord. Not literally, Lord, but like, you know, help, have them stop misrepresenting those, my, me and my coworkers for their own political gain in the company or whatever the case. So ask. So practice Christian lament in the face of injustice and oppression so that God produces unshakable hope in you. So what is T, Kat? What do we have so far? T is what? 
turn to the Lord. Next one is complain to the Lord. Next is ask the Lord. And lastly, trust in the Lord. Verses 16 through 18. It ends in trust. So when you're complaining to God, you're turning to him, you're asking him, you're giving your reasons. That's scart, the R there. Giving your reasons for why God should act. Now you're going to turn at the end and, and like by that God is working in your heart that eventually you get to the point where you felt hopeless in the beginning when you're complaining. Where are you, God? By the end of it, Lord, I trust you. You got this. Let's look at the trust, verses 16 through 18. Two things here to note, verses 16 and then verses 17 and 18. So the th first thing to note here is that God rules forever, verse 16. If you're going to trust in the Lord, what, what does he trust about the Lord? God rules forever. Verse 16, the Lord is king forever and ever. Yahweh is king. Jesus is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. God rules forever. Just like the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. Just like Israel disobeyed and broke the old Israelic covenant, so they were kicked out of the land. The evil will be kicked out of God's land when um, right now in the church, we excommunicate those who are kicked out of the temple of God, the church. And when Christ returns, he will have the sheep and the goats and the goats will be removed and they will be put in the lake of fire forever. And they will be removed from his land, his new earth. God is king forever and ever. From the Garden of Eden to the New Jerusalem, God is king and he removes the wicked from his place. He rules forever. Second thing to note here about trusting in the Lord, not only that God rules forever, but secondly, and I guess my second and last point here for this is God will respond for the humble and oppressed. You can trust the Lord. God will respond for the humble and oppressed. Look at verses 17 and 18. Yahweh, Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their hearts. You will listen carefully. Notice here, God hears their desires in verse 17. You have heard the desire of the humble. God hears. God listens when you pray. God listens when people cry out to him. And the humble here, we've got to be careful. We're Christians here. We're, we're trying to be biblical, right? God does care for the oppressed in general, but this is speaking of the oppressed and the humble who are in Christ or in covenant with God. doesn't mean we should care about the oppressed who are outside covenant with God. But let's take the psalm for what it's saying first. The oppressed here are humble, and that humility is a fear of God. It's not the oppressed in general. Um, cause you can be oppressed and arrogant. You can be oppressed and rejecting God. This prayer, this is the prayer of the covenant community that is oppressed. The covenant community that is the oppressor is not heard. At least in this, nor should they be heard. If sometimes can the covenant community oppress people? Has the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah, have they oppressed people in the old covenant? Yes. Can churches and pastors and Christians oppress people? Can they sin in that way? Yes, they can. And there's not speaking about applying there as if they just get off scot-free. But the prayer request here is for the humble, those who are oppressed and humble before God, not the oppressor. God will respond um, because God will strengthen their hearts. Look at verse 17. You will strengthen their hearts. And then God will listen and act faithfully. Verse 17, 18. You will listen carefully and what will God do as he listens? God is not a hearer only. He's a doer, right? Be doers of the word, not hearers only. Why do you need to be a doer and not a hearer? God is not a hearer only. You will listen carefully, and then what will he do? In verse 18, do what? Doing justice for the fatherless and the oppressed. The unprotected and the oppressed. The fatherless and the oppressed. Why does God do this? What's the purpose in verse 18? So that what? So that mere humans from earth 
may terrify them no more. God will judge. God will do justice for the fatherless and oppressed so that those weak, mere humans will stop and never oppress the, the oppressed again. He will finally save his people. There's an eternal aspect to this. He will do justice for the fatherless and oppressed, and he will completely, he will grant complete and utter safety to the oppressed, finally, in the end. Now, I said finally in the end. I didn't say right now. Why are you so distant, Lord? Why are you hiding? The good news is that God's timing is perfect, right? You can agree with that and still cry. God's wisdom is perfect and infallible. So when we're the innocent party, we cry out for justice. God, why? When? How long? Where are you? Don't misunderstand God's patience. Don't misinterpret God's patience as God being indifferent or God being unjust and unrighteous. God is not unjust. He's not unrighteous. And he's not indifferent or apathetic. Don't interpret God's patience as apathy. Because sometimes we want God to act right away, right? I mean, if I could pray in that moment, God, deliver that, that per, you know, whatever oppressive situation you think of. God, deliver that person from oppression right now. You want God to act right now. You pray for God to act right now. And sometimes God does not immediately judge. Oftentimes, God does not immediately judge. Should we be thankful for that? Well, what if God judged you immediately? Not just stopping you from a, a moment of oppression. What if God judged you immediately and then took your life before you were converted to Christ? Would God have the right to do that? What if God did? What if God judged you immediately? And someone prayed a Christian, honest, sincere, God-glorifying prayer. God, please bring justice on that person. And it's you who's doing the sin. You sin against your coworker in that moment or sin against your family member. And what if God just came down and struck you dead the way you struck Ananias and Sapphira dead? And what if you weren't actually converted and then you went straight to hell for judgment until the final judgment? What if that was you? Aren't you glad that the Lord was wise and patient with you? That he did not act immediately in judging you and stopping you when you've sinned against other people? Praise God, he does, he does not execute immediate justice all the time or else we would not be Christian. And praise God that he didn't do that to the Apostle Paul. What was the Apostle Paul doing before he became a Christian? He was arresting and approving the killing of Christians. He was going straight for Christ's jugular. Right? Christ said, why are you persecuting me? When Christ stopped him on the road. Paul was attacking Jesus. And Christ could have wiped him out and sent him to hell forever. Right? God, where are you? Stephen is being stoned. He's being killed. Where are you, Lord? I'm working in Saul's heart because I'm going to save him and make him, make him an apostle. And he's going to do great things for my glory. Praise God that he doesn't immediately execute justice on our timing. God's wisdom is perfect. Praise God for the gospel of God's patience and wise timing and justice for you. It's still, we, we should still ask the question though. Go back to verse one again. Why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide in times of justice, in times of um, trouble? Now, remember, this psalmist is writing before Christ or after Christ? Before Christ. So we could ask this question. Why is God so slow in acting for the psalmist? Well, because God is eventually going to send his son 
to the earth and he would become a man at the perfect time. And guess what, Psalmist of Psalm 10? It's not time yet. Jesus will come when Jesus comes. And he's going to come at the perfect time. And so you got to wait. Why is God so distant? Because it's still a distant time until Christ comes. So wait. The Psalmist had to wait. That could be an answer. Why are you so distant? Well, I'm going to bring it, but you got to wait for Jesus. The Messiah will come eventually. But we're not on that side of the Messiah, right? We're not on that side of the cross. We could say, God, why are you still slow for us after the cross? I get why the psalmist had to wait because he's waiting for the Messiah. You've already come 2,000 years ago. Why, why are you still slow for acting for us after the cross? Why is he slow for his people suffering oppression and injustice today? Why? I'll give you two answers. 2 Peter 3, 9 says this. The Lord does not delay his promise as some understand delay, but he is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Ben Bratcher read that for us in our New Testament reading. That's the first answer. Because God is patient and wants people to repent, just like he did with you. A second reason why God is so slow and distant, and it seems like he's hiding, is because, um, well, first of all, if we say, why is God distant? Why is he hiding? Psalm 10, 16 to 18, verses 16 to 18 teach us that even though we feel God is hiding and distant, is God hiding and distant? Is he actually hiding and distant? No. It's a real feeling, and that's a legitimate feeling. We want to legitimize that feeling, but we still have to say in actuality, God is not actually distant. He's actually not hiding. He's actually right there. God actually hasn't abandoned you. Why? Because there was someone he actually did abandon. There's only one person in the covenant community who could truly say, God, why have you abandoned me? Where it's not just a feeling. It's not just a legitimate feeling. It's actuality. Jesus hangs on the cross in darkness and doesn't just pray a feeling of lament, not a complaint of lament. He prays a cry of being judged and damned under the just and righteous hand of God for every oppressor who would ever be saved. Christ hangs there and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? And we know why. Because God is patient to save all who would come to repent and trust in Jesus Christ. Christian brother, Christian sister, Trust the Lord in your trials. Trust the Lord in these trials in Los Angeles in, and in America in these days. When you can't see why God's good, trust that he's good by looking at the cross of Christ where the greatest injustice and the greatest oppression and the greatest evil led to the greatest salvation and good for God's people and for the whole universe. Trust God will turn every tear you have now, every tear you shed now, into the joy of celebration on the new earth for all eternity. Church family, let us be a trusting and hoping community for one another and for our neighbors and for the nation. So practice Christian lament in the face of injustice and oppression so that God produces an unshakable hope in you. What is TCAT? How do you lament? What's T? Turn to the Lord, secondly. Complain to the Lord, third. Ask the Lord, and lastly, trust in the Lord and in the cross of Jesus Christ. Now I wanna call all members here to write their own prayers of lament. That's one application. You just take the TCAT and you can fill in your own complaints. Doesn't have to be my complaints, fill in your own complaints. And ask the Lord for specific things and then trust the Lord to do good. So turn to the Lord, write out your complaints to the Lord, 
ask God for specific things and give him reasons. Scart, that's the R in Scart, right? And then trust the Lord to, to act. Now, I want you to maybe pray that tonight in our gathering or send it on email to the church. Now, just know this. Some of you and some of us, even myself, I might write a prayer of lament that actually is theologically and biblically off. And there might be places for us to correct each other, even publicly. If we're going to publicize our prayers on email to the church or do it on a Sunday night, I want to give you space to do it. But we're a community of grace, right? Not a community of performance. You don't have to get it perfect. We need to be able to accept correction as well. So I'm inviting an open public lament. But I'm also letting you know, just as, as pastors and members, we need to make sure that we're trying to be biblical. But it's okay to just, do, you know, don't be so, don't get caught up in performance. Trust in the fact that we will love each other and be gracious with each other. And it's good to say what we're feeling anyways. You don't have to say it to the whole church. If you want to just share it with another member or with me, just to say, hey, am I okay with this? Or do you think this is okay? I'm happy to look at it. Or you can check with the other pastors. But I want to challenge you guys to write your own lament. But we need to do more than trust in the Lord. Faith without works is what? Dead. Trust without works is dead. And if we trust God to bring justice to the fatherless and oppressed, then we must live and act on that belief and let God use us as part of his plan to bring some of that justice about. Jonathan Parnell preached on Psalm 10 at his church, City's Church in Minneapolis. And when he preached it, he said, I want, they break up the Psalms among their preachers. And when he preached, he said, I want to preach Psalm 10 because verse 18 gripped me, that God helps the fatherless. Because he took that verse and said, that's why we have adopted two children. We've adopted kids because we want to be, because God is the father to the fatherless. And God uses his people, the church, to open up their homes to people, right? Doesn't God do that? So that Psalm, now Psalm 10 is not saying to do that. It's just saying trust in the Lord. But if you want faith to not be dead, from other biblical passages, what we're going to talk about tonight, love your neighbor as yourself and love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. One application is to be a tool for orphans and widows in their distress. That's true religion, according to James 1. So I, I want to talk about us just briefly here as I close. I want to talk about us doing justice, doing righteousness, okay? Now, in the history of the Anglo-American church, and that's the heritage that I've been discipled in, the Anglo-American church is rightly concerned about speaking of issues of justice and application because that has led in, in the history of Anglo-American churches to the social gospel where they deny the gospel of Jesus Christ and say the gospel is about just doing good works on earth and denying the gospel. We want to run from that and we want to be scared of denying the gospel like any church should. That's why they avoid, like historically, that's why they've avoided talking about practical issues as opposed to the African-American church, which talks about issues a lot. And I want to I say you need to, as a member of this church, hold to the gospel. You need to hold us pastors accountable to preaching the gospel and not abandoning the gospel. But we also believe in our confession, Article 16, the Christian social order, it says this, recognizing whose created order this, that this is, every Christian should seek to bring industry, government, and society as a whole under the sway of the scriptural principles of righteousness, truth, and love. That's what I want to call you to. I'll read the rest of it. Christians should be ready to work with men, with all men of goodwill in any good cause without compromise to Christ. Improvement of society can be permanently helpful only when rooted in the regeneration of individuals. So we're not trying to fix Los Angeles forever. It can't be permanent, right? Unless there's salvation. We get that. But every Christian should seek to bring industry, government, and society as a whole under the sway of the scriptural principles of righteousness, truth, and love. Is this not our duty? Is this our duty, yes or no? It is our duty as a Christian if you're going to love your neighbor as yourself. 
John Piper said, we care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. And we care about all injustice, especially injustice against God, when we sin against God. But we care about all injustice, but especially injustice toward God and his glory. Now, I need to say this before I move on now. I might be incorrect. I don't think I am. Obviously, if I thought I would, I wouldn't say it. The pulpit, this pulpit, and the public teaching of this church, if you're a teacher, James 3.1 says you incur what? Stricter judgment, right? So I will incur stricter judgment for what I teach, including what I say right now. But the question of whether ethnocentric, what ethnocentric oppression today, this question has to be answered by Christians and by pastors. So I'm going to say something now. I'm not going to give a full argument here, but I'm going to say something now. And um, I will be held accountable for this before the Lord. But there's all kinds of things that people preach about the tribulation. There's a right and wrong view on the tribulation. Does Jesus come before or after the tribulation? The millennium. Is the millennium right now or is the millennium in the future? You can get that wrong and you're going to give account for that. But to me, that debate is not nearly as important as this debate. This one is affecting lives. You can debate millennialism, debate millennialism and tribulationalism, and nobody gets hurt for that. Not necessarily. But, but this one is, is more important for churches to get right. Okay? So, God will hold me accountable. If you disagree with me, I ask for your patience, forbearance, and I will ask you to, I ask for your initiative, for you to come to me and let's reason together and pray. I am responsible to preach and theologize to you. And what I have taught and the way I teach, the way I theologize is this. You read and apply the Bible in, um, I, I was taught this in seminary. You're, you're, you read the Bible at Southern Seminary. You read the Bible with five horizons or five, five horizons, okay? First is the text itself. You apply the text by itself. And then you apply the text um, covenantally. What covenant is it in? And then you apply the text. You understand the text canonically. How does it fit in the whole Bible? That's all biblical studies, right? Those three. But then you move from that to, then you apply the text confessionally. What is the confession of the church historically? That's why we have a confession of faith. And that's why we do historical theology and the creeds. What, how do you apply this text confessionally? But then there's one more that a lot of Christians are missing right now. This is where the debate is. You apply the text contemporarily to your contemporary situation. You have to interpret that way because you are in a contemporary situation and you, you interpret the Bible that way. So you have to get that right. You're accountable as a Christian to get that right. I'm accountable to teach you to get it right. All right. So let me make three non-controversial statements and then two controversial statements before we close, before I close with another call to lament. Three, three, three statements that I think shouldn't be controversial in our church. I know it's controversial out there. Shouldn't be controversial in this church, but it might be. I don't think these three are, though. Statement number one, the actions of blaming African-Americans, you know, the, like the phone call. I don't know if you guys have seen that where the woman calls. There's actually three incidents, uh, three reports to the police of African-Americans who have committed a crime where, there was, where it was a lie, where they incited that as their justification for, for what they were doing. Okay, the Central Park one is the one that comes to my mind. But blaming African-Americans or preying on them in, in calling the police is sinful. Just using that, knowing that that's a situation that's in our world today. I think everyone in our church should agree with that. Second thing that I think is not controversial in our church. The killing of George Floyd, asking for help while being choked to his eventual death, was a sinful misuse of police authority given by God, which was given to serve and protect. We all agree there, right? I think. I don't think that's controversial here. Third thing that I think is not controversial, the stealing and destroying of private owned businesses in response 
is sinful. I think we all agree there. I don't think that's controversial. You might want to say, well, let's talk about the reasons behind it and it's not all equal. I get that, but I think we should agree with that statement. Stealing is, is sinful, right? And destroying private property of others is sinful. I think we agree with those three statements. Are we safe so far? Okay, two controversial statements now. Now for the controversial statement. The initial instigating, the initial instigating sin and injustice is greater than the response, the sinful response. Okay? The initial instigating sin, the unjust, um, the unjust abuse of police authority on George Floyd is a greater sin than the response to the sin. Now, let me give you an example here. It's a, it's a greater sin in the same way that a child molester molesting a child has the greater sin than the child who grows up to be a promiscuous, sexually immoral teenager. Still sin. You can't just start sleeping around with everybody because you were molested as a child. I can understand why you might want to find security in that way, you know, and other things like that. But I would say, if you say, well, what's greater, the sexual immorality of the teenager or the, the sexual abuse for two years in the home that, um, that traumatized and really sexually distorted her whole life? I'm going to say that the initial one is greater than the following one, okay? And I encourage you to think that way too. Both are sinful, but one provokes the other. Secondly, second controversial statement. The sin and evil that has provoked the... Now, I'm going to talk about... Let me talk about what I think the cause is in our contemporary moment. The sin and evil that has provoked the pain, the painful and in some ways sinful response that you see around us, the sin that has provoked that is the denying and the ignoring and the indifference to the cultural pattern of ethnocentric oppression toward African-Americans today. And that ethnocentric oppression towards African-Americans today inevitably affects the way everyone in this room and everyone in America sees our society to some significant degree. We all have glasses on. We're all responding to a huge reality that's, that's real in America today, and some of us don't see it. Even if that effect on us is unintentional and subconscious, it's still there. And it's unrighteous. And it's evil. And it's wreaking havoc. And so when a killing like what happened this Monday happens, it strikes a nerve deep in the African-American community. A nerve that I don't have as an Asian-American, as a Filipino-American. But it's there, and I feel a little bit. And so the reason for that nerve is the sin that's, that's been constant and is still here today that is being ignored largely and not dismantled righteously. All right, those are the two controversial statements. You might not agree with them. Happy to discuss them with you. But I'm teaching that as a pastor, teaching you and, and encouraging you to, to say, hey, this is biblical and I think you need to think this way. But whether you, wherever you are, we should lament where we can, right? We should all lament where we can. We should seek greater understanding. We should lean into the scripture and faithful theological understanding and responding to the situation that we have been placed in. I'm not going to take time here in this sermon. I'm already over time, but this is a, this is a historical moment that I need to explain to you and apply here. So I don't mind going over time. You know, I don't normally mind anyways, but especially today I don't mind. I won't take time to lay out the cause of ethnocentric oppression this morning. Um, I'll explain an argument for, argument for it later. I'll just give you my categories. The reason why I believe it exists today, my arguments would be, a his, I have a historical argument, the history of our, of our nation. 
a sociological argument in terms of statistics today. Some people want to throw out some statistics and I'm happy to talk about them. So sociological reasons, theological reasons. I'm happy to talk about theology. That's, that's my bread and butter, right? That's what I live for is theology. Happy to stay in that lane. I can give you theological reasons and then testimonial reasons. Okay, so those would be my four arguments for it. You don't have to agree with it. I'm not even arguing for it right now. So don't, PJ didn't convince me. I'm not trying to convince you right now. I'm just saying, I'm just proclaiming the truth of what I see, what I, what I say is the truth. So I'm going to call you, whether you agree or not, I call you as the blessed people of Jesus. Those of you who Jesus talks about in Matthew 5, 3 through 10, you who are poor in spirit, you who are gentle, you who hunger and thirst for righteousness, you who are peacemakers, you who are reviled for following Jesus, you who are the salt and light of the world. I'm calling you, you are you who are seeking to gospelize and disciple your neighbors and the nations for their initial and final salvation. I'm calling you to seek, whether you're on, on this debate, I'm calling on you to seek to bring industry, government, and society as a whole under the sway of the scriptural principles of righteousness, truth, and love. Even if you disagree with me, I'm calling you on that. We can all agree on that. That's our confession of faith, okay? One more thing we can lament before I close. That it was likely a Christian brother who was killed in Minneapolis. I couldn't confirm whether he was an actual member of Resurrection Church, but they were talking about how he partnered with them in gospel ministry and discipleship in Houston before he went to Minneapolis in a discipleship program to get his truck driver's license while he's going in a discipleship program. So he is part of a church and working with churches as a Christian. He had a criminal past and they started working with the community, with the church and helping them plant this church and start speaking up for the church and say, Hey, if you guys are doing this Jesus thing, that's good for our community. I'm, I'm hundred percent for it. And he started advocating for the church and working with the church in Houston at Resurrection Church. And this church is a Southern Baptist church. This church is a gospel preaching church. This church preaches Christ. The sermon series right now that that church, that that, that pastor is preaching, he's preaching through uh, one, to, one verse on, on every Old Testament book on how it points to Jesus. His last sermon was on Leviticus and how Leviticus points to Jesus. That's the church that he was serving. So we could lament the fact that it was likely a Christian brother who was killed. Imagine if it's one of our brothers. Think of any of our African-American brothers who are members of our church. I mean, they were texting each other at church. Hey, there's another incident after the running Ahmad Arbery. There's another one. And someone in the church is like, no, nah, I, I, I can't take it anymore. They're like, no, dude, it's, and then it's Big Floyd. Like they texted a fellow church member, this is Big Floyd from our church. You need to see the video. I'll close with their pastor's words. Here's what he says. If you fast forward 2000 years, there's another innocent sufferer whose blood spoke better, better things than Abel's. Jesus's blood says he can redeem us through these dark and perilous times. The pastor said, quote, that's a quote and I'll continue the quote. I have hope. Because just like Abel is a Christ figure, I see my brother Floyd as a Christ figure as well, pointing us to a greater reality. God does hear us. He hears his cry even from the ground. Now, vengeance will either happen on the cross or will happen on judgment day. Isn't that what we believe? 
right? As Christians, judgment happens on the cross or on judgment day. So let us practice Christian lament in the face of oppression and injustice so that God produces unshakable hope in you and through you. Let's pray. Father, hide these words in our hearts that we wouldn't sin against you. And when we sin, call us to repent and cause us to repent. Grant us repentance, fresh repentance and fresh faith in Jesus. Father, I am not the Bible and I can get things wrong. Give my brothers and sisters here and all who hear ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Help us all to take every thought captive to Christ, not to me, to Christ. And help us to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbors to the very same degree as we love ourselves. Teach us to lament and hear us in our lament and act in light of our lament and cause us to act in light of our lament. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.